welcome to The King Perspective. My name's Chris. I'm a psychotherapist and consultant. On today's show, I, we've been, I've been covering the last week or so about emotional bleed, post-impact scenes, and our separation from fantasy and reality and how that feels and how this affects us in our lives. And through a little bit of conversations here and there with some colleagues and doing some more research, the topic obviously is quite big and kind of only really scratched the surface, but it did lead to another interesting phenomenon that would be kind of closely tied to this. And in today's edition, or my interview edition again, um, I have with me a clinical psychologist, Elise Leprino, who's been kind enough to take time out of her practice today to come and talk with me about emotional dysregulation. Elise, thank you so much for carving some time out of your extremely busy schedule to sit down and talk about this uh, very interesting topic. Yeah, absolutely. I actually love talking about emotion dysregulation, so I appreciate the invite. It's 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 really an interesting comp- topic at really at the core of mental health because we're really talking about now where we sit in our emotional range. Um, Can you take everybody through what emotional dysregulation is so they can get a little bit of a better understanding of it? Yeah, uh, emotion dysregulation is, uh, it's essentially, well, okay, I'm coming from a lens of of, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. Uh, And what we talk about in DBT is that um, when you're dysregulated, you're at a point above your skills breakdown point, which is essentially like, we rate, we rate emotions on a scale of one to five. If you're at a four or a five, that's about the point where you're emotionally dysregulated. Uh, and essentially what that means is if you try and take any actions at that point, you're probably not making anything better. You're probably moving toward making things worse at that point of being emotionally dysregulated. Uh, and you're probably not being very effective, essentially. So uh, emotion dysregulation is that point where your brain starts to get fuzzy at like a four. and Maybe you're not able to hear totally what somebody's saying to you, even though you're trying really hard to concentrate on the conversation. Um, or a level five is like the most you've ever felt that emotion. That's what we're talking about with emotion dysregulation. So do you think a lot of it stems from, you know, we'll hear, we'll hear people, we'll talk about, especially in our practices, you know, I was so angry, I'm just seeing red and, you know, there's nothing else that they can focus on, but purely the anger or the extreme sadness, like maybe a severe manic episode. I know some people are going to have this question of, does this sit in that range? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of the the times that we're seeing red or that, you know, uh, we're not able to really fully be present in the moment, that's about the point where we're emotionally dysregulated. Um, and I think dysregulation gets thrown around a lot. Uh, ultimately, what we're talking about here is a state that every human being gets into because we are, in fact, emotional beings who think sometimes, as opposed to what we prefer to think of ourselves as, which is thinking beings who like have emotions sometimes. Yeah, it's, you know, when when we've seen these practices or these issues come up with clients, it really seems to be, I mean, it's it severely impacts someone's life and not just them, their partners, their friends, their family members. And they're, I get, you know, they're on this emotional roller coaster. What do you think is the biggest impact for somebody with this? The biggest impact in terms of uh, like how it how it shows up in their lives, right? Yeah, 
Um, really, it, it shows up socially very quickly. Um, we actually have this nerve in the back of our head. It's called the vagus nerve. Uh, and there's this whole theory of therapy, the polyvagal theory, um, that uh, is some really great work by Deb Dana and, um, and I believe Peter Siegel. Um, and uh, they talk about this nerve that um, c- both communicates our emotions in our faces and also is able to uh, do this thing called neuroception, where, uh, you know, part of your brain picks up on the fact that that person's eyebrow is crinkling just a little bit. And maybe you right. read it as angry. So uh, we that process is called neuroception in this theory. Uh, and essentially, the same nerve also changes your facial expression when you're having emotions, which fun fact, the emotions happen in your body before before you're able to even name what emotion is happening. So the person across from you in a given conversation might know what you're feeling before you even know what you're feeling. So the emotion dysregulation hugely impacts us socially. I mean, that's interesting. We're we're talking about now starting to identify somebody's, I don't like to use bodily tics, but even pre-emotional variations before an event occurs. Sure. Yeah. So like you're able to pick up on on small pieces of uh, how the person's emotions are showing up on their face, like maybe even before that person is able even able to recognize like, hey, um, that comment that you just made uh, translated into me feeling angry. You know, I might not be able to say that I'm angry, but my body language or something about the way that I'm holding myself might communicate very clearly to the person across from me that I uh, am no longer as happy as I was before they made that comment. Is it is it different? Is it difficult for those sitting in this area to maintain any prolonged emotional state? Hmm. To ma- maintain a prolonged emotional state, you know, it's hard to say because naturally, emotions actually only take about sixty to ninety seconds to fire uh, by themselves. Um, right. it, we keep retriggering them as, as human beings, like we emotions like themselves, we want to stay in those emotional states. So uh, I, I suppose as long as someone's able to concentrate on it and try to stay in that emotional state, they can keep it going for a quite long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we look at these baselines of these emotional states, and we start to understand who we are, and what's setting us off. I guess then the next part is if we're stuck in that state is transitioning out. So we are either calm or we're unsad or not feeling some sort of an extreme. What for you in your experience inside of your practice, what's led to some of the factors that, uh, I mean, for me, as I started to dive more into this was interesting. Some I know, but what are some of the factors that lead to emotional dysregulation? There are a lot of different things. Um, you know, there's there's historical factors. There's you know um, things that have happened in your past that would impact um, the way that a given uh, prompting event is what we call it in DBT. So you know, even me sitting across from someone and they look down at their phone could be a prompting event for me feeling disconnected. Um, but uh, any kind of prompting event is going to impact uh, every human being in a different way. Um, And that's partially because of uh, their genetic uh, composition. You know, some people escalate emotions a lot faster than others, um, just naturally. 
Um, and some people, once they're escalated, uh, they fade really quickly. And other people, once those emotions are escalated, they stick around for a long time. So it's not only the speed at which the emotion goes up, but also like the length of time that it sticks around. And that all could be a biological uh, factor. And and it could be because of something that's um, you know genetic, like I said before. It could literally be vulnerabilities of, I didn't get enough sleep last night, or I didn't get enough to eat today. And that's going to impact my emotional state. Uh, in terms of the historical piece here, uh, we call DBT is a little bit like learning a new language. So I'm going to try and just explain these terms as I'm coming across them. But um, in DBT, we talk about this as associations. I'm having an association to a time that this uh, other story was true. Um, one of my uh, supervisor's favorite uh, phrases is um, it's like yesterday's soundtrack is playing over today's movie. I might be experiencing a past uh, experience, even though I'm in this moment, which is very different from that past experience. So that's going to change my understanding of the situation that I'm in and my emotional response to it in a way that perhaps the person sitting next to me is not going to have that same impact. Yeah, that's 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 severely true. I mean, we I see this in trauma a lot where we're stuck in a constant regression of a memory and we can't get out of the pattern. They, you know, walked into a bakery where you know, mom yelled at them 20 years ago, and then all of a sudden, mom's voice appears, and they are completely disassociate from the reality that they're currently in. They're not, they're no longer present. They're stuck now 20 years ago. And jarring us back out of that memory, you know, and then you couple that in with severe abuse or sexual assault, different factors too, as well. When we were talking earlier, you had mentioned a quote, um, and I want you to come back to that quote because I thought that was really, it was quite niche and quite fitting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Gabor Mate is a really a wonderful researcher. He does a lot of different work on addiction, on ADHD, on so many different things. Um, would highly recommend any number of his books. Uh, he has this quote um, that I really love because there's always this debate about like, is is something, uh, is some component that I'm coming up against in my experience of the world, is that because of nature or is it because of nurture? There's always this argument of nature versus nurture. And Gabor Mate talks about it as, um, it's actually how our nature is nurtured that is really the, the way that that all comes together. That's an interesting point of view. Yeah, I think so too. I, you know, I don't think we really understand, you know, if it is our environment that we are in and how we are then taking care of that environment, which in return, that's the environment that's supporting us. And we're not realizing that correlation for a lot of, I think, a lot of things. Um, Sure, yeah. I think it's easy to discount how the environment impacts us that way. Yeah. God bless sociologists. <laughs> Nothing against our sociology friends. We're not downgrading you by any means, but you know. I have so um, much respect for sociologists. <laughs> um, we're going to move on. We're going to move on past that comment. No, there's a lot of love there. The, we all do excellent work in our fields, and I have respect for you all to do what you do. Um, I don't want to say, I don't want to make it anybody think that I don't have respect for sociologists. I do. So there's some work that they do. I couldn't, I, yeah, being a social worker, I really couldn't do. So, but I don't want to digress too much. When we, when you look at people with this, with ED, and it comes to their relationships, um, is it more prevalent in your experience? They're experiencing these moments 
by themselves or more often than not when they are involved in some sort of relationship dynamic? You know, it if you're having the emotion by yourself, um, it's really hard for a lot of people to sit with that discomfort. Often we immediately reach for some kind of social connection. And, and a lot of times what happens is um, when we have found that social connection, we may not necessarily uh, do what we call in DBT accurate expression of, you know, calling somebody up and saying, hey, you know, I had a really rough day and I need somebody to uh, listen to me talk to about that really rough day. Do you have a few minutes? You know, a lot of the times we'll, we'll call up and the tone of our voice will communicate pretty quickly uh, our state of mind. And we may or may not have the uh, words to ask for exactly what we need in that moment which immediately turns it into a social issue that uh, may go in a way that is not as effective as we're wanting it to go. Do you think, have you, are you familiar with the phrase that made some popular rounds in the last few years called sad fishing? Or are we I'm using, not, no. so sad fishing became, I wrote about this before, it's where we're using negative effects or negative, or negative feelings and we're talking about them on social media and then in the hopes to draw people in so we can bolster our own feelings so we can feel validated so sure. you know i got yelled at and i'm feeling bad or you know my car i was in a car accident or my car was totaled or keyed and we're telling people all over mm-hmm. and we're looking at these types of feelings are we are we seeing some sort of pattern here as well where there's a so sad fishing is equated to attention seeking behavior mm. how would someone make a differentiation between having an ed episode versus the potentiality of attention-seeking behavior? You know, it's hard because essentially what we're talking about here with regards to sad fishing is um, seeking out validation. Like, because what, what the person is looking for in that moment is for somebody else to come onto this comment chain and say like, wow, I can't believe that happened to you. Like, that really sucks, man. I'm sorry. Um, and, and ultimately, if, if we're met with validation or we're met with a validating response when we are in that um, emotionally dysregulated state, we're going to be able to regulate a lot more quickly, um, whether that's from ourselves or from somebody else. So another one of my specialties is mindful self-compassion. So it's really about the fact that if I have to spend 24 hours a day in my own head, uh, I hope I'm being nice to myself because if I'm spending 24 hours a day with a bully, then I'm probably not having a good time most of the time. Uh, and oftentimes those who experience those really uh, hurtful internal dialogues are also probably seeking validation externally much more frequently because they're not getting it from themselves. I mean, that's that's interesting. We don't often think about how self-critical we are. I mean, it's one thing I talk about with my clients. We are our own worst critic, but mm-hmm. then it's even worse when we turn off the fact that we don't recognize how bad our own criticism is and then we spiral downwards and then as we're spiraling downwards and we're hurtling towards that you know inevitable crash we keep beating up on ourselves Mm -hmm. and we don't pull ourselves out of that pattern we're not being mindful in the moment that you know we're not we're not equating a lot of our pain or emotional issues at the current time to maybe there's a an event coming up that we're wanting to disconnect from. And, you know, this is what's actually put me in the mood. It's not really because I'm a bad person. And, but we take that one moment, we take, mm-hmm. I'm a bad person. And then we go, no, you're not just bad, you're terrible. You're not just terrible, you're shitty. And we keep compounding it and compounding it. How often do, we, do you see somebody doing something like this 
Um, or is it something you've dealt with or seen inside of, you know, a relationship or in a marriage? Oh, so often. Um, you know, it, I'm, I'm thinking about all the different ripple effects that happen here with these cycles, because ultimately, I mean, our brains are wired to think that they're doing us a favor when they're judging us that way. Like, like we've been taught from a young age in a lot of different contexts that punishment is the way that we learn. And actually, the science shows that punishment is not the way that we learn. We learn through reinforcement. Punishment just makes us hide things um, and just creates shame. So by punishing ourselves, by judging ourselves, um, we keep that cycle going and it snowballs and it just turns into all of that stuff that you're talking about there. Um, in terms of the way that it uh, impacts our social lives or our marriages or our relationships, um, you know, if I'm uh, if I'm already halfway through a spiral and then I come in and start talking to my partner and they even if they try and, you know, get me out of it, they might be telling me um, they, they might have to do this thing that we call in DBT uh, invalidating the invalid. So uh, if I come in and I say, wow, I am just the worst person in the whole wide world because of this small thing that I did, my partner might, uh, the most validating thing that they could say to me might be, you're not the most worstest person in the whole wide world. Um, let's talk about what happened, you know, but they might need to tell me that I'm wrong about that invalidation in order to validate me uh, and in order to basically stop that cycle from happening. Um, and it might not always do that. Sure. No. And that makes sense. Interesting here, though. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring a I'm going to bring a challenge question to you. Sure. Because if we look at the world of the lifestyle community, the BDSM community, where we are mm -hmm. talking to total power exchange and relationships for the most part, or for those who deeply participate in these, and I know your understanding of that life as much as we've ever had discussions is growing. Mm -hmm. When we talk about punishments where they, you know, they reinforce negative behavior when that's being consensually given, then how do we, in that sense, and in that context, in a power exchange, either from a dominant, whether it doesn't matter the side of the slash, whether it's the D or the S, how is, are you going to apply, would you apply that same level of empathy and patience for either partner in that moment, and have them disregard that total power exchange in the heat of something like an ED episode? Well, it really does depend on the dynamic because it is like, it's such a specific thing that gets negotiated between partners in that, sure. in that setting. Um, also, I, I'm working under the assumption that the definition of punishment uh, in those settings is very different than the one that we talk yes, about. Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. I, and that's why I wanted to bring it up though, because sure. it's valid It's valid for those who are inside of that world, that are heavily invested inside of that world to kind of understand there is a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, with regards to punishment in in that world, it's it's more of like a negotiated thing. It's like a, a it's like a natural consequence. So so you know we talk about consequences of our actions, and if if uh, I am in a dynamic with someone and I've negotiated that this would be a consequence of uh, me not following through on a given commitment, then that that is uh, you know part of that behavioral change dynamic that that the both of us have negotiated in. Um, ultimately, though, uh, what I've heard about in terms of types of punishments uh, also results in like removing the reinforcer of attention. So like yeah. I might be reinforced just by having someone's attention and the punishment might be the removal of that attention. So so that's kind of what I'm talking about here in terms of punishments. How might that be as far as somebody and we'll get to somebody communicating their mm -hmm. issue with somebody soon, but how might that affect somebody? 
who hasn't communicated because let's be realistic for a minute when we enter relationships i mean our families know us quite intimately but when we enter a, a relationship with somebody we're not sharing 100 percent yet we're, we're holding back we all have walls because you know we're we're testing the waters and when we get into our deeper emotional issues or problems that we face sometimes we don't know if we can share them with somebody so if in this type of situation someone doesn't know that one of the part one of the party you know one of the two of the party is suffering from ed how are you how do you think that person's going to react with something taken away and then two and that'll lead us into this next part is how do you broach this topic with somebody mm. Yeah, there's a lot there. I'm just uh, chewing on it for a second here. No, that's okay. Because it is. It is a really big, I think it's a fundamental question. When we have, you know, we we talk about, oh, you know, if I'm schizophrenic or I've got bipolar disorder or um, I've got, you know, major depressive disorder. I mean, these are big things and these are intimate things. And I know, and you and I have talked about, there is stigmatization across mental health. It just happens. Yeah. And we, unfortunately, arbiters that have come before us have helped that because we've got to classify everybody in a neat little box. Mm-hmm. I don't look at client A with, oh, well, that's client A that's, you know, trauma-induced child uh, issues relating from, you know, sexual assault, and then that's just the box you're in for the rest of your life. No, that's that's a segment. It's a piece of your time that's happened. And then will, that time will either define you for the rest of your life or it'll just be a moment in time that we work through it. So I understand some of these concepts, they're very delicate and they're very personal. They're very, they're personal on the level that it's just as much, it's, I would think they're almost personal or more personal than being intimate with somebody because we're really giving them a piece of who we are. Well, and not only that, it's, it's a piece of who we are that's been stigmatized. It's a piece of who we are that's intricately woven with that shame cycle that we're talking about here. Like there yep. is a lot wrapped up in that of like self-judgment or, you know, even just the observation of that, like we haven't been socialized into a, a society that rewards these types of relationships publicly very often. That alone can create this sort of shame. And, and ultimately, there's this piece of uh, getting to know someone when you're in a dynamic with them and, and, and having some level of vulnerability. I mean, communication is hugely important. So I would hope that um, if I was uh, in a dynamic uh, in, in which there, I was experiencing emotion dysregulation or my partner was experiencing emotion dysregulation, there would be cues. Um, that right. one or the other of us would be able to pick up on that, like, hey, this this person is not showing up in in the same way that they normally would. It doesn't. I'm not really getting those same uh, neuroceptions, those same vibes off of them that they're feeling, you know, happy, social, like ready to continue. Um, and at the same time, uh, there's this piece of self disclosure of like sharing about our past, sharing about our um, our own mental health struggles ahead of time, um, because there are vulnerabilities that might show up in a in a scene for one person that might not for somebody else, uh, and it would be really important for their scene partner to know about um, about whether or not that's a, a landmine waiting to happen. What kind of advice would you give to somebody? Sorry about that. That uh, has ED entering a relationship, but doesn't know how to relay this to their partner? How do you open this door? Because, I mean, this this is something bigger that can 
you know, can be quite impactful, especially when we talk about getting into certain scenes that are can be quite emotionally expressive. I mean, we're we're talking a form of erotic control here, and this can take us into different emotional places or psychological places at that. How do we bridge this conversation, or even when's the best point to start bridging this conversation so we don't have to worry about this stigma if we're dealing with ED? Certainly, I think the conversation would need to happen before getting into a scene that's intense enough to be like really pushing boundaries. Um, also, though, it requires a certain level of self, self-awareness uh, just in order to know what it is that needs to be shared. Um, so, so there, there is some level of discovery, uh, through this process as well, that like we discover pieces of ourselves in relation to other people. Um, I, I personally think that the, the only way to know, um, and I can't even say that it would be a hundred percent of the time is to be really aware of and attuned to your partner and just willing to have those conversations or, you know, being willing to use those, those safe words and, and, pause things if need be, because it's sometimes impossible to know if something's going to be triggering uh, sure. until you're actually in that moment. You know, and it's interesting because this past weekend I'd, I'd written this piece about, you know, we have to learn how to self-validate before we can get into, you know, worrying about validation from anybody else. And I know that with people with ED, it's, it is been, it's, it's helpful. Because that the constant worry, that constant detachment from themselves creates that space where they need that validation becomes more important. Can you maybe expand on why validation may be more important for somebody with ED than typical? Where we would say, oh, God, you know, you're, you need to be validated all the time. That's just too much for me. Because, I mean, we've all been in kind of relationships or we've had clients that have, they're seeking so much validation. Um, and that's usually stemming from another part of their life or maybe they didn't get enough validation as a child or um, they felt invalidated by an authority figure and that's manifested into adulthood. But how important would it be in this sense? Extremely important. Um, I mean, there's a few angles that I'm thinking of uh, to come at this from. One of them is just a quote from another uh, coworker who talks about, um, you know, she's got those clients who come in who just need to be watered every week. You know, they're just plants that like are not getting water anywhere else. And they just need to be nourished once per week. And that's what what they are getting out of the therapeutic relationship. Um, Right. Whereas uh, the other thing that comes to mind is actually a concept in the mindful self-compassion framework. It's called backdraft. And ultimately what backdraft talks about is opening that door of like validating ourselves and getting hit in the face with this gust of like pent up shame that we've essentially, after all of the times that we've, you know, taken those big, difficult, heavy emotions and shoved them into that door in the back of our brain or in that box that they explode out in like a gust of hot air and they hit us in the face and it's painful and it's no fun. And often um, after we've got a long backlog of these self-invalidating experiences or self-invalidating conversations that we've just been shoving into this box, um, we've got uh, we, we've got a lot of work to do in terms of letting out some of the pressure. Um, and that takes sometimes, you know, a, a number of times of validating ourselves before we can open that door or open that box without it being painful to do so. Um, and that's actually part of the process of learning self-compassion 
is uh, getting through that um, that difficult stretch of uh, unlearning the shame. And, and that's something I think that is universal for many human beings that I've talked to, at least. Uh, you know, I can't comment on 100% of human beings, but uh, I will say it's markedly worse for those who have had invalidating childhoods or who have learned invalidation as a protection strategy. Well, you know, when we're looking at, yeah, and I mean, now we're, we're starting to hint at like even communication patterns and, and where we're feeling and what we may need out of not just ourselves, but in our partners. Do you think that the patterns of how we communicate play a much more pivotal role inside of the relationship with those that are affected by ED? And oh, whether or not, sorry, sorry two-parter, two-parter, I'm going to trick you up with this one. And <laughs> then if those patterns can be worsened through ED or alleviated by opening up this communication. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I mean, our, our emotion dysregulation is absolutely not only impacted by our social interactions on a, on a daily basis, but also, um, you know, impacted by our past experiences as well. So it, it's a constant learning process. I may have learned over the course of years of living with my family of origin, one way of communicating, uh, and that might have to change in order for me to effectively communicate with a new partner. Um, and then I also learn in my interactions with that partner what is effective in communicating with them. But if I'm always talking to uh, a partner who is, um, you know, they only ever reinforce me for one type of uh way of communicating. Like if, for example, somebody needs me to be um, very precise with the words that I use and I'm, I'm having to control my emotion dysregulation in order to be very precise with them um, every time I am feeling lots of feelings, um, that's going to turn into a cycle of self-invalidation where I kind of have to turn down the volume on my own feelings in order to feel like I can be heard. And that's definitely going to impact the way that I show up in that relationship. And it might mean that when I turn around and have some emotion dysregulation feelings with somebody else, I'm going to be really precise with my words because that's what worked in this other relationship. You know, it's a learning process all throughout our lives. Sure. But that brings up a really interesting point because then you're talking about people adopting a pattern of potentially avoidance or withdrawal. And shutting down emotionally to avoid very difficult com you know conversations or even physically distance themselves from their partner and that becomes very overwhelming inside of these relationships especially then you know if you start adding in blame because one person can't talk about something that may be affecting them so uh it might be triggering for the person with ed if they're you know their partner is a, a medic and he's talking, you know, they're talking about the calls they ran on that day, but that's triggering for their partner. So now we're shutting down and criticizing our partner for their day because it's going to affect us, but we're not also then taking into account our partner's feelings. Mm. So now everybody's avoiding and withdrawing from different. So we're, we're basically painting ourselves into a box here yeah. and limiting the actual conversations we can, which stagnates growth of the, relationship and puts even more undue pressure on it i guess you could say i mean i mean i know recognizing this pattern can be difficult is it possible for relationships to grow grow and evolve enough with through conversations that they're consistently and actively working on not avoiding or shutting down 
Yeah. So that, I guess, gets into the, the DBT definition of dysregulation. When you're at a four or a five out of five in those emotions, actually your best bet is to take a few minutes and go go take care of yourself and your own emotions. It, it might not actually be helpful to continue on with that conversation. Um, but ultimately, the key that we're coming to here is um, this accurate expression piece. Uh, you know, if my partner comes in and they've just had a really long day doing things that I personally find triggering, an accurate way to express my feelings on that might be, hey, like I hear that you're having a really rough day and that there are pieces of it that you want to share. I don't have the bandwidth to hear some of the things that you're talking about. Um, are there things that are important for me to help you talk through or, you know, how much of it is necessary for you to talk through so that we can also find a balance that works for both of us? You know, that's the accurate expression piece. The other piece is curiosity, is is just legitimately being curious about um, what it is that your partner needs when they are feeling emotionally dysregulated and not pushing through, which I think can be such a temptation when we're ha when we're up against somebody who is like feeling a lot of feelings and we don't want to have to come back and revisit this conversation again. It feels like it would be making them get back into this mindset that the, the emotional urge there can be to push through and keep having the conversation right now. Uh, and ultimately, in some of those moments, it's best to, to back off uh, and be really curious about what they need before we come back to this really difficult topic. Well, now what's interesting, because now you're getting to a point, which is bread and butter, because we always talk about boundaries, personal, familial boundaries, friendship boundaries, relationship boundaries. And we're talking now we're, we're getting to, which is a great, because we're getting into the bread and butter of this. We're talking really about boundaries. So we can work in because boundaries you know are important to any type of relationship regardless of what the relationship looks like although we have terrible boundaries with our families we all know that one so <laughs> um but how when we're starting to look at as far as ed and setting boundaries how important is it for somebody experiencing this to have very clearly defined and significant boundaries it's very important um, also, though, I, I think, you know, the, the word boundary gets thrown around a lot. And I know that you talk about it a lot on here, too. Um, my understanding through the work that I've done in DBT is that, you know, we only have control over what we have control over. So ourselves, when I yeah. I'm, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying ourselves. Yes, our emotions, how we react to others, the, the typical that runs in that status quo, how we react, what we think. We don't control anything outside of that purview. So. Right. You know, um, and we can set boundaries as far as um, boundaries and rules often get confused. You know, I'm I'm not, a rule is no speeding over 55. Well, I'm going to make the choice whether I'm going to break that rule or not. But boundaries are I may not end up having sex with somebody while I'm dating them for the first couple of months because I want to get to know them and not feel not cheap in the lesson. Or I may not, you know, reveal too much about myself emotionally. Um, in the beginning versus later on, but learn how to balance it out. So it's healthy for us that we can grow and experience something with somebody else while not feeling like the conversation is consistently one-sided or we are constantly giving more than we're getting in return. Yeah. Yeah. So like with that definition of boundaries, um, we're, we're talking about, you know, I've decided for myself that this is how I'm going to comport myself in relationships. This is how I'm going to go about this. Um, and, and that's, that's also the way that we talk about boundaries in, in DBT in that it's, 
it, it's like a like a limit is is kind of the word that we use too because limits are a little bit more movable than boundaries they kind of feel like walls uh, a lot of the time the way that people talk about boundaries but ultimately it's um you know i i am willing to do this uh, i am not willing to do that uh and so when we're setting a boundary with someone uh, around something it might even be uh I, uh, I won't tolerate being talked to in this way. If you talk to me in this way, I am going to remove myself. You know, you're, you're allowed to say whatever words you're going to say, but I'm, I have control over my physical presence in this, in this space. So um, with regards to boundary in, in boundaries and in a kink uh, dynamic, I, I think that that really d- goes into the, the negotiations at the beginning. And also, you know, if you start to come up against something that you're like, hey, like, uh, every time we do this kind of a scene, uh, I'm starting to realize that I'm feeling this and this and this, I might need X, Y, Z in order to feel better about doing this kind of scene, or we might need to tweak this in order to, to better align with my boundaries. That's kind of what I mean about them being more malleable, more movable in, in that way. But, but we do want to be very respectful of other people's boundaries. We, we don't move other people's boundaries. They move their boundaries. Yep. Thank you again. I just figured out that I was on mute for like five seconds. Thank you. So I'll come back to that again. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. How do you think that affects somebody inside of a relationship where when we're setting boundaries for ourselves, which are healthy, regardless if we are the one with um, ED or not, and then we're now, if we are suffering with the, from ED, but we need more from our partners. So now we're asking them to move their boundaries. We are asking them to shift for one reason or another. And then when they, if they don't, or if they move at a place that we're not comfortable with, then that typical catastrophizing effect comes in. I'm not good enough. They don't like me. I'm a bad person. Why did you? And we start just going again, love going down that dark path of we are what's wrong with the world, which then exacerbates the issue we're already inside of. Yeah. What comes up for me as you're you're talking about this is actually uh, Brene Brown's definition of guilt versus shame, which is uh, guilt is I did something wrong and shame is I am wrong. Um, so, so ultimately, uh, we're talking about the, the difference between behaviors and, and personhood. Uh, is, it, is it possible for me to have someone comment on my behaviors without me hearing it as a comment on my personhood? And am I able to change my behaviors in the context of this, this relationship without feeling like it's changing who I am as a person? Or am I asking to be changed? Or, or is, is this person asking me to change who I am as a person? And am I okay with that? Um, that that's, I think, the distinction that we're talking about here. Well, that's interesting because you're bringing up the cognitive effects. And, and I don't think many people, well, I don't want to say that. I, I don't want to be generalized. I don't know how many people understand that ED can distort the cognitive process and it can lead to very irrational decisions or thinking and really distort that the world that they're now viewing their lens in when something is happening to them because of these very intense emotions um becomes i don't i don't want to say a lot of people understand that because it's not a world i don't think it's something that's very much talked about and which is another reason why I wanted you here today to, you know, and I really appreciate you talking about this today because I don't think we tend to understand how impactful something like this is. ED is not one of these more discussed mental health issues 
at least not in my, you know, and what I've seen in, in the part of the world that I'm in, it's not something that pops up quite often. How about for you, though? Does it pop up more often than not? I mean, I, I happen to specialize in, uh, so the, the original book for DBT was um, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Borderline Personality Disorder. So um, I actually specialize in a population with lots of emotion dysregulation. So I actually come across this all day, every day. Um, so, uh, it, you know, in, in terms, though, of how these emotions happen in our bodies, I'm going to I'm going to nerd out for, for a brief moment here Please. and just explain the process. So um, let's say I'm driving and uh, the car in front of me slams on their brakes. Uh, my, my eyes perceive this and, and the information goes down two neural pathways at the same time. Uh, one of them is much faster than the other one. The faster one goes actually directly to my brainstem, changes the state of my body, and has me slamming on my brakes. Before uh, I am able to even think about what it is that's happening in front of me, I've probably already slammed on my brakes. My body has entered a response, and I might even have my heart rate raising. I might have some anxiety or some fear responses happening in my body. After all of this is already ongoing, that same signal from my eyes goes through my amygdala, picks up my emotional state on its way, filters itself all the way back up to my prefrontal cortex, and now I can have the thought, oh crap, that person just slammed on their brakes, uh, and maybe have some other expletives that come out after that. <laughs> but ultimately, the, the emotion, the state of my body changes before I am able to tell myself a story about what happened. The emotion happens first. And that's something that we as human beings benefit from in terms of keeping ourselves safe in many different situations. Uh, emotions are actually messages from our body to our brain that something is not right or something needs to be changed or, you know, something's happening. But, um, but that process of actually thinking about what emotion we're in or thinking about whatever it is that's happening in front of us, um, the story we tell ourselves is dependent on the state of our body. And also um, that state happens way faster than the thoughts themselves. Well, and that's interesting because now we're getting into the behavioral aspects of it. And does ED manifest in maladaptive behaviors? And can individuals become so impulsive, which is kind of what you're talking about here, in doing things in the heat of the moment that they end up later regretting? or worse, can't take back. Mm. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and I mean, in terms of the stuff that they can't take back, that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about making things worse, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the, the idea of um, impulsivity goes hand in hand with this a lot. Um, because if I have uh, something that spikes my emotions up really high really quickly, that's going to have an urge come up in my body. Um, you know, in, in DBT, we talk about urges that are specifically attached to various emotions. So um, to differentiate again between guilt and shame, if I'm feeling guilt because I've violated one of my values, I've done something that I don't agree with, I might have an urge to go apologize or I might have an urge to repair. If I feel shame, if I feel like I might get kicked out of my tribe for whatever it is that I did, I might feel an urge to hide. So those emotions are very similar. Um, people get them confused quite often. But uh, the, the idea is that there are different urges that come with our different emotions. And if we understand this is just an urge that's attached to that emotion that I'm having, we don't necessarily see it as I have to act on that urge. That is something that I now have to do in order to move on with my day. Or I have to listen to the emotion or the emotion is who I am. These are all myths that we tell ourselves that kind of have us acting impulsively on those urges. 
Well, that I mean, again, and that's interesting as, as, and we then have to hope that we have a supporting partner that's there for us. If in this case we are with somebody, and uh, if alone, we have to have create the strategies and coping mechanisms to get us to the awareness point. So pre pre episode awareness awareness coping mechanisms, and then post to maybe reflect on how we handled it or the emotional impact, but it would be different. Or would you use a similar kind of model or model if you're with somebody? And if you have a partner who's kind of in sync and understanding what's about to happen or what you're going through in the moment, would you take a similar approach to that as far as aiding somebody through? It's tough to aid somebody through perfectly ever because we don't know sure. what's happening internally. Um, the the DBT skill that comes to mind is the stop skill. Um, I joke that this one is slowing down time because uh, the acronym is stop and also the first word is stop. So uh, our first step in the stop skill is to stop and then we take a step back. We observe what it is that's happening inside of our body, externally, in the environment, and then we proceed mindfully. Um, but if we can manage to insert this stop skill between having the urge to do something and then actually doing that thing, we can slow down time uh, and, and be more intentional about the choices that we're making. And that's something that we really have to be able to recognize in ourselves. If we're in a partnership situation or if we're in a relationship with somebody else, we have to be able to let that person know, hey, I need to take a step back for a few seconds because I'm at a point where if I proceed with this urge um, or where I'm at emotionally right now, it's probably going to make something worse or I might do something that I'm, I'm later going to regret. Sure. What's interesting, because for me, like I look at cognitive restructuring. And heavily inside of this where not just through stress management and something like this, but then even sometimes in role playing so we can take a step outside of ourselves to see the see that issue and then might even flip it around where we have our partner or somebody that's even helping us at the time, regardless of who it is, act out what they think we're feeling or what we've expressed we are feeling so then we can see it from their perspective as well. And it it adds sometimes not always successful, but it does add another layer of empathy to somebody um, on one behalf. So we not only is the person who's facing this seeing the issue from their side and understanding God how it affects them, but then how it affects somebody else. So then both parties can share more or maybe even a deeper empathetic bond. Obviously, that's more of a utopian type view because everybody's going to have, yeah, I know, you're giggling. I know, uh, you know, I'm an optimist. What can I say? But um, I think if partners are truly connected and, and we are at that stage where we are making that decision that we're staying with somebody regardless of whatever's happening in their life, and it doesn't matter what, that the deeper the bond grows, that this can be, I've typically found role-playing and swapping emotional states can be quite effective. Because I really enjoy cognitive restructuring because it allows people to step into the mind of some, step into the perceived mind of who they're with, and at least show them what it show their partner what it's like for them and how they how they're perceiving it's coming at them. Yeah, you, and and it's it's different. It's different. Cognitive restructuring is different, but. Mm -hmm. 
it's just a different kind of, you know, it, it's really a different process of doing it. I know not everybody likes, well, I'm, I'm not talking about the type of role play that everybody experiences in BDSM, <laughs> but this is more of a <clears throat> kind of a, when we're working with our partners who are experiencing some sort of emotional plateau or moments in their life and then helping them out after the fact so they can, you know, say, oh, okay, well, this is how this played out. Um, and thank you for helping me not only become mindful of that for you, but now this adds another layer of complexity for me. Do you think people with ED, the more that they learn, especially with their partners and how they're reacting, it helps their state or hinders it? It absolutely helps so long as they can get through that hurdle of self-judgment. I find that the, the shame uh, reaction of like witnessing the reality of, of how we're coming across sometimes can stop us in our tracks and make us feel really defensive. Um, you know, uh, the cognitive restructuring thing that you're talking about reminds me of this concept of a, a double crux, where essentially when you're in an argument with someone, you take the position of the person on the other side of that argument and, and uh, argue each other's positions back and forth to one another for exactly that purpose, to like get get an understanding of that other person's position, that other person's perspective. Um, and for a person with emotion dysregulation, a, a lot of times um, that level of dysregulation comes up because they have felt unseen in so many contexts, in, in so many ways when their emotions have been big. You know, a lot of times uh, emotions communicate to us, uh, if, if I'm not being heard, get bigger, get louder. Uh, and so they, we, we learn that they have to be up at a certain level before we get a response, which is how in adulthood we get uh, big emotions that seemingly come up out of nowhere, because we've learned over the course of our lifetime that if it doesn't get to this level, I don't get heard. So if, I, if I'm in a conversation with someone where they're taking on my emotional dysregulation, if they're trying to understand through living my emotion dysregulation what, uh, what it is that I'm feeling, likely that's going to allow me a lens that, that feels very seen. Uh, and I have to imagine that that's very validating on a deep level. That's interesting because that brings me up to something that's more in your wheelhouse, which is distress tolerance. Yeah. And really understanding how not to feel so overwhelmed and dealing with that and trying to find a quicker path to back to our equilibrium. And wow, I didn't really, I guess I haven't framed it much in that, because that's more, that's, distress tolerance is more in your world, um, specifically than mine. Um, but I've heard of it, and I've, I've looked at it, and it's fascinating. Um, I, I frame it completely, I mean, I look at it quite differently when, we're, when we get into the mindful aspects of what's going on, and then are sometimes counting down from our pressure or the steam or you and I have talked about different grounding methods. Um, and we'll get into grounding methods here in a second. Cause Lise has one that's really wonderful. I use a counter to it, but they pretty much run quite similar, but um, I typically understand. I mean, if I'm, I'm looking at this correctly, um, sometimes the inability to bring ourselves down obviously significantly worsens during a crisis. Mm -hmm. So the more somebody's feels helpless and they're out of control, um, 
the less they're going to be able to stop seeing red or stop seeing the you know blue, whatever their case may be, as far as where they're in their emotional range. But as they learn over time, especially with working with someone like you and your specialty, you're teaching them how to deal with the emotional incident without feeling overwhelmed and building up that tolerance level so they understand what the emotion may be like at its peak and then how to hurdle that peak in a much easier fashion. Instead of maybe going up and over, you can find a path around. Yeah, distress tolerance is really interesting that way. Actually, um, that that stop skill that I just described is yep. a distress tolerance skill. Um, it's from that module. Uh, and and d- distress tolerance is, it, it's it's about riding the waves of our emotions. Uh, again, remembering that emotions generally take about 60 to 90 seconds to fire, even at their highest. Um, so unless I'm re-triggering that emotion with thoughts about like, this is why I'm angry. And oh, yeah, this is another reason why I'm angry. And if I add this other thing, like that's another reason why I'm angry. You know, uh, if, if I'm not adding height to that emotion uh, with my thoughts or with my actions or by putting on a movie that makes me angry because that's going to add another two and a half hours to it, um, then yep. I, uh, I'll, I'll be able to ride the wave of those 60 to 90 seconds a lot easier. Many people don't want to ride the 60 to 90 second wave of those uncomfortable emotions, and they will do everything and anything they can to escape that, uh, which just ends up sending it back into that box in the back and and has it added to that pressure that we're creating uh, with regards to backdraft that I was talking about earlier. But um, we'll do anything to escape those feelings. We'll grab our phone. We'll start scrolling through videos. Like there's lots of things that we as human beings these days have access to that help us distract from those feelings. And not all of them are going to be effective ways of distracting um, and and getting through that. So distress tolerance teaches us how to um, acknowledge that the emotion is here and that it feels really strong right now and that ultimately... uh, acting on it, doing anything is is not going to help me. Uh, what I need to focus on right now is riding through this emotion and just getting through this moment, tolerating the distress in order to then do something effective on the other side of it. What kind of advice might you give people entering any type of relationships, whether they're you know normal relationships, lifestyle relationships, and anything in between, if they're suffering or they're dealing, let's not say suffering, that they're dealing with emotion dysregulation at this level, at any level in reality, what advice would you give to them when they're meeting somebody new or they've been in some sort of relationship dynamic for a few months, they've been afraid to talk about this with their partner, what advice would you give someone to sit down and you know broach this subject with somebody? Yeah. It's difficult, um, mainly because, especially in the case that you're describing, a person who is has been experiencing emotion dysregulation and has been afraid to bring it up to their partner, that tells me that there's, there's some kind of cue that they're following that makes them feel afraid to bring it up. And, and it might not necessarily be an external cue. It might not be something that they're picking up on from their partner. It might be some kind of internal myth that they've got about whether or not their emotions are acceptable, which brings us back to shame. So uh, in terms of what what I would give as advice uh, is it, it would be trying to be really gentle with yourself as you're noticing the big emotions, trying to be really gentle with yourself as you're really trying to be accurate with the way that you're wanting to express those emotions to somebody else. And also thinking about, you know, um, the, the whys 
Um, why is it that I've waited to talk to this person? Is it that I feel like they wouldn't be accepting of hearing about my emotions? Is it that I didn't have words for them yet, which is totally fair? Maybe I'm just noticing how much uh, I get emotionally dysregulated and, and I'm not even, I didn't even have awareness of it before now. So really getting curious about why it is that it took me as long as it did to bring up these kinds of things in as much of a non-judgmental sense as possible. We're just noticing, we're being gentle with ourselves. Um, and then also maybe noticing the why of why is it that I need to share these details with this partner? What parts of this do they need to know in order to show up for me effectively? Um, do they need to know about my whole medical history with regards to this thing? Or do they just need to know that in this scenario, this emotion tends to come up for me and I need to find a way to manage it that might be helpful if they were able to uh, give me some some help uh, or some support, I suppose. Sure. I mean, I, I would think, okay, so if I bring this into a more into the world where this kind of surrounds, especially through what I'm doing on the show, would this be more of a prevalent conversation that would need to happen with people that are inside or entering the lifestyle in any sort of aspect or level? Absolutely. I, I think it's a necessary conversation. And honestly, I think that it's a necessary conversation for more people than probably are aware of it. Uh, I mean, many people experience emotion dysregulation. It's not like this is a, a very special topic that we're talking about. It's not like it, it affects a small number of the population. Uh, emotions affect everybody. Um, and it would be helpful for everyone to be able to have frank conversations about that, uh, especially in these dynamics where we're really playing on big versions of emotions, like big vulnerable emotions too, um, specifically within scenes uh, and, and with somebody that we've, we've grown to trust very, very deeply. Um, so I do think that it is a, a pretty necessary part of these conversations. And I'll, I'll balance that with the idea that there's not a lot of awareness around it. So it's really hard to talk about things that we're not aware of in ourselves sure. or that we're not aware of in other people. So no shame if it's not a conversation that you haven't had or that you have had, but it might be one that you want to try. Well, and I think this is kind of why I wanted to bring this up today. And I, and not only that, that, you know, as you and I have gotten to know each other, it's, it's become... Um, the things that you deal with inside of your practice, you know, they're different. And your approach is like with stop, you know, um, I use things like, obviously, we've got smart, specific, measured, achievable, realistic, time oriented, right? Um, we all have our little things we do inside of our modalities that are helpful. But a lot of times we don't seem to understand how when we're helping people or people who are looking for someone who are looking for help, how to broach all of these topics because they feel it's only happening to me. And I get it, you know, all of these, no matter what we're going to talk about in mental health, even in the future, everything, you know, does affect different population sizes globally. But I don't think, unless we talk a lot, talk about it, normalize the conversation and then say, you know, look, this affects me on occasion. Um, this is how, this could be me at my worst, but I want to let you know, cause I care about you. And I don't want you to think I'm taking it out on you. So not to be scared of having that conversation and letting the impact of that conversation then rest with somebody else and let, then let them have time to process what you said so they can understand. And it's not to shut, I don't want people to think that I'm also saying, oh, well, this can shut you out of relationships. But I think especially inside of a more complex lifestyle where we have to really worry about 
the differentiation between hurt and harm, especially emotional harm, that these types of these are the types of conversations, the adult conversations we have to have. They really are. And and it can be a scary conversation to approach. It can be really intimidating because it requires us to have that level of reflection ahead of time to really articulate what it is that we're feeling and then bring it to somebody. And that's such a vulnerable process. And and a lot of times those of us who are hesitant on having these conversations have been burned in the past. You know, we've brought these kind of feelings to somebody and they have not received them well. So I think that it's it's really helpful to have a framework in mind for these conversations of like, hey, um, I'm going to be talking to you about something that um, I'm, I'm feeling some big feelings around. Uh, I, I need to share it with you. I don't need advice. I don't need you to fix it. Uh, I don't even necessarily need you to have a solution for it right now. I'm just putting right. it on the table as something that we need to discuss if we're going to be going about this in the best way possible. Sure. I think, and that's valuable because I think sometimes we do meet people or we are, people tend to naturally be fixers. Oh, I can fix you. I can fix that. It's not about fixing. Sometimes I just want you to listen. I don't want you to even say anything else. Just listen. So, you know, my favorite, I love you, but shut up. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just sit there for a minute and it's like, okay, it makes sense. Um, look, I I want to, first I want to say thank you for talking to me today about this and kind of talking and see, you know, it's correlations to some people who inside of this community, inside of this lifestyle that may or may not be affected by this. Um, for many of you, I will be putting Elise's contact information inside of the episode. So if you're looking for somebody or you have something that you might be more curious, you'd like to talk to her more about, you'll be able to reach out to her. Um, but you know, Elise, really thank you today for taking time out, sitting down, talking about something that's so important inside of mental health, um, sharing your knowledge and, and all that you've learned, um, especially, and then, you know, being able to bring more to the table as you gain more experience over the coming decades. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you for letting me nerd out for a little while. I love talking about <laughs> the way that the brain works about these things and having an opportunity to share that with uh, a population of people that might be uh, benefiting from it is, is such a joy. So thank I, you. Very much. I think it's, I think it's so important. I think it's so important. And sometimes we have to nerd out. Sometimes we've got to talk about the, those modalities or the, the specific techniques we're using or, or sometimes we just got to be true and real and we just got to say it how it is. And um, mm -hmm. sometimes we need to hear that. Um, but for all of you uh, that you don't know, like I said, I'm going to put Elise's contact information here in the next couple of weeks after a very long discussion and me kind of badgering Elise a little bit. She has agreed she's going to be kind of coming into not so much joining my practice, but kind of going to become a part of my practice. So if you were looking for a DBT therapist, you were going to be able to find her through my website, another channel to help her grow in her career, get more of her name out there and bring her wonderful knowledge and techniques to the world. Um, but yes, thank you again so much, Elise. And for all of you listening out there, until next time, everybody, be safe and stay kinky.